Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode is about migrating legacy workloads to new infrastructure, modernize effectively. And we go through this conversation pretty methodically, talking about how databases get linked, how they get used, how they get migrated, how important it is to maintain languages and what it would take to migrate in languages. In the end, we look back on that conversation and apply lessons learned to what we are building today, which I think is absolutely essential because today's new designs will become tomorrow's legacy and we'll be struggling to migrate those in 10 or 15 years too. So everything we can learn helps prevent that cycle. We know we're going to enjoy this podcast. And Rob and I have been having uh, several conversations about complexity recently, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the buzzword for, um, I really do think it's going to be the marketing buzzword for this year. I think so, so too. I watched even um, with Honeycomb, I.O., started using complexity, like like observability to deal with complexity as, as part of their, their, their new messaging. Are you saying that that we're going to see complexity as a service? Oh, I love the idea. (laughs) Are we going to be the opposite? Simplicity as a service? No, I like the idea of complexity as a service. We will make your your IT portfolio even more complicated so you have no idea what you own. (laughs) Okay, Beth, I know you work for Verizon, but Verizon has nothing over AT&T on that one. Oh. Uh, I, my understanding is AT&T is more harebrained than Verizon on this this one, but we we do have a whole bunch of stuff based on AS400. <laughs> so it's a rock solid platform. But. It is. <laughs> and um you know what it is is you you can you can layer on as many GUIs and and front ends as as you want, but the core stuff in in our systems, and I'm sure this is true of AT and T as well, is still based on a whole bunch of antique databases. <laughs> yeah, because moving data out of those databases is just not cost effective. Especially, I mean, even the antique ones have better APIs now. So, yeah, it's, it's not it's not as if it's it's now you know, isolated. You can you can still use and incorporate the stuff. And yes. I, actually, actually, that is the time you, you just walked into the topic of the day. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> the, Great yeah. segue. And, and Great. we're scheduled up to the 22nd, so I, I'm, I'm not going to worry too much about uh, doing a future topic. We'll see if something shows up. But yeah, Beth, do you want to expand on the you know, legacy uh, on that? Because yeah. I mean, really, this it's, it's a hard problem. It's an extremely hard problem. It's not unique to the telcos. Actually, financial services have it even more. So basically, think, think telco financial services, whatever. Uh, Oh, utilities also have gigantic databases that have Mm. literally millions of records in them. 
Um, you know, and those are the base records, right? You know, we have what a uh, couple hundred million. We have a hundred million, over a hundred million customers. You know, cellular customers plus. Sure. plus. So, so we have a database that has all in it, obviously. And uh, utilities, same deal. You know, they have. You know, National Grid has a gigantic database of you know all their customers, and those databases were set up years ago, decades ago. You know, I don't know how long ago Verizon's goes back, but I'm guessing to the 1980s, maybe, maybe earlier. Um, Probably so, 70s, maybe 60s. Possibly, could, yeah, yeah. Could be 50s, depending, but I don't know if Verizon was around back then. But it was. It, goes it, back no, 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 Verizon Bell was, Bell, was called Bell, Bell whatever. Uh, Bell Telephone. Bell Alliance? Or, or, or before Bell that. No. So then it does go back to the 50s because they had to keep their customer base when they spun off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, so there's a lot of investment in that, in that, because that's the that's the company crown jewels, right? Um and uh, you know, they were built with 1960s, 70s, 80s technology, right? Um, so I experienced using these databases um, a few years ago. Verizon uh, um, line workers went on strike. So me being management, I got to be a line worker for a while. So I was um, my job was called "Where is my tech?" So you can imagine what that was. But who's that service? Cool. Where is my tech? Yes, it involves calling calling up our, our, you know, me, among other people, and yelling at us. <laughs> Why hasn't the tech shown up? <laughs> um, but, you know, I access the database of, you know, the, the customers to, to, of course, do my job. And it was a really interesting experience. I got to learn about this system, which um, is called Coffee Anywhere. Coffee stands for something. I don't remember what. Um, and, um, yeah, there was a GUI interface that somebody had built, but, you know, all the old timers were like, nah, we never used the GUI. We just used the, we just used all the, the old codes and we used the green screens. So that's what I used. So, um, 3270s were they or 30, the old IBM screens that everybody used to have that did databases. Yeah. Yeah. That's what these were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, all the codes to access everything was, they were three letter codes and everybody had memorized, you know, the 20 or 33 letter codes, uh, to, yeah. to get access. Um, and it was pretty amazing what the data was in there. Cause you know, I had a customer called up and said, yeah, it rains. So my service is out. I was like, oh, that's interesting. She goes, yeah, every time it rains, my service goes out. And I looked in her record. It went back 30 years. <laughs> sure enough, every time it rained, the service went out for the last four years. Because <laughs> I could see, you know, there would be like a record that said, oh, service was out. It rained, you know, in the comments. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> you said so, some issues like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, it involves copper and water not being a good combination. Um, but, um, but the point is, is this is a gold mine of information, right? And, 
um, to translate that into a newer database? Like, what what is even the point? You know, it's a database. So, what would you gain by moving the petabytes? I mean, you could you could have you could have cost savings. You could have um, you know better performance, or you could have better better feed into a analytic system. Would be my my thing. I mean, I, I guess at some point, if you have a reasonable database connector, then you know it doesn't. It, you can just feed data one way or another. That's what we did. We just pulled right, and that's what we do. We pulled the data out, and we do analytics, and they know, you know, how I would see the reports. You know, how many how many tickets were raised, and you know, we'd flag people that called every two weeks <laughs> to complain, <laughs> um, and uh, but. But the the reality is, it's just cost way too much to trans to to take the underlying databases and translate them into a modern system. It doesn't really gain you much. I mean, it costs millions of dollars. It's very disruptive, and you know what? It's cheaper to just slap on analytics and pull data and whatever. Well, <laughs> go ahead. At this point, that those databases are essentially just libraries where most of the time the stuff stays on the shelf and you only have to pull a, a book out occasionally, but when you need it, you need it. So, you know, you just a giant storage room with uh, all the books in them. Yeah, but, that's exactly right. But there's also a, a category of legacy workloads um, for which... The, the hardware is not only not supported, but it's no longer manufactured anymore. Yeah. Uh, one example, for mm -hmm. example, is the, the Pickering nu nuclear plant here in, in Canada, um, where they buy uh, from enthusiasts uh, old computers, because oh that's the only way for them to source spare parts. Uh, yeah, I, I think I told you guys about this. I worked for a for a company that did nuclear parts, uh, nuclear testing, and I they were buying they were buying the cards off enthusiasts because they were running DOS, you know, MS DOS three yeah. they're on these stupid cards. Wow. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of which. Anyone needs a, a Lisp machine, a Symbolics 30, 3640. I got one with a bunch of spare cards. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, but does that mean that, so there's two things. One is I know that we've talked a lot about the need, like the danger of these legacy systems is, you know, sort of security issues or the lack of patches, like any one thing could make that, turn that system into brick. Without without you intending that to happen, how how big of a risk is it to have that type of maintenance? It's a huge risk. I mean, this is this is the whole reason for Y two K. All those databases that Beth was using existed before Y two K had to be updated for Y two K, and people are still writing COBOL because of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is why the people who do know COBOL make big money in, 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 uh, for financial institutions um, because they, they can charge whatever they want, essentially. No one else is learning COBOL. <laughs> um, 
Well, but they're all dying off. I mean, they're all boomers. Yeah. They're retiring, so, dying off. Yeah. So, so, so you end up being a, a like a contractor. You you get shipped to wherever you need to to, to fix these cobble systems. Um, your contract starts like in the millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and then goes up. Uh, it's it, it's basically it, it is the textbook example of don't touch it if it's not broken uh, type of environment. Yeah. So in, in the modernization stuff that we're talking about, are people just moving it or are they moving it and like making it more resilient? Can you make, I mean, can we make it more resilient or are we they're, just moving They're emulating moving the it or simulating it. They're yeah. simulating it all. For the old, for the old stuff when they're, okay, that's a straight legacy migration. You're not patching. You're just, yeah, which makes tons sim- of sense. Simulating the old machines on new software. So oh, yeah. I see a lot of becoming that. software. P2V, but at a very big it scale. It goes back to the retro <laughs> game stuff too. Retro uh-huh. games are doing the same thing. That's right. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing amount of retro games out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, machines are fast yeah, enough that you wouldn't even notice the emulation. Or, well, so, try or, playing Cosmic Osmo on a new machine. <laughs> I, actually, it, it sometimes it's it's the other way around. Machines are so fast that you do notice the the the, right. the, the emulation. Cosmic Osmo is one because yeah. what they did is there are parts of that game um, where they um, they took advantage of the fact that the machine was slow. Mm-hmm. And when you run it on a faster machine, it's quite noticeable because yeah. parts of it don't work. Yeah, it's, it's similarly, your old DOS games, like uh, the one that I remember was Battletech. Uh, and and uh, there's one section where basically you need to, to do a timed course. And the time is based on CPU ticks, not, not, on, the, not on the actual clock. Yeah. Uh, so the, the workaround for that is to. Uh, uh, is to basically force a, a slower CPU speed in, in your emulation. Wow. We use that strategy though as a migration strategy. It does. I mean, it doesn't feel like that's no the way when people. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so there, I think there's an advantage right now in that uh, you talk about COBOL and it's all boomers, and you talk about these simulated games and stuff i think in some ways we're benefiting from nostalgia and that there's a new generation of youngsters who have found the nostalgia of some of these games and whatnot and so they are developing the school the skills to port and migrate these things and so well there there are even some i mean it's it's frightening what some of the folks are doing. They're 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 reading Soul of the New Machine, and they're wow. building PDP eights and tens. And mm-hmm. so there are going to be some crazies out there doing COBOL too, because there's something out there that somebody wants in COBOL, even if it's to hack the DMV. RT eleven, right? D- the, the 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 problem though is that these are in enthusiasts and and they build yes. it they build it for fun 
you, you cannot run a financial system on on an on an emulation layer that's written for an enthusiast because yeah. it you don't have the guarantee that that it will not only perform the same but it that it will give you the same results that's true but you still if, if just a few of those enthusiasts realize the dollar signs in front front of them and you get serious they become the the newer consultants yeah sure there aren't a lot of them but since they can charge so much it doesn't matter that there are only a few of them well but but yeah those those guys are specialists but the majority you know become obsolete if they if they follow the there's a, there's a friend of mine who's who became a master Perl programmer. And he, you know, he was like, oh, Perl is the most wonderful language in the world. You know, why would you want to do anything else? You know, he can't find, it, find any work now. That's, yeah. That's uh, he needs him, to them by. He needs to go to electronic design stuff. They're, they're still doing it in electronic design. But yeah, yeah Perl fourth is another one where it's a very small if you can find the fourth work, there's enough of it for most of the fourth folks that can find it. But, yeah, finding it is the tough part. And well, but again, if you're young, if you're young and you're entering the field, you're not going to invest the time in learning Pearl. That's true. That's right. <laughs> Just a real expression part of it. Because the ones that have those skills, I mean, this guy's. I think he's in his late 60s. Um, uh, you know, they have those special skills because they were doing it when Pearl was first came about 25 years ago. So people in the industry know about him, right? So if they if there is a Pearl thing that needs to be done, he will get a phone call. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but you know, if you're young and you're you're contemplating your your career as a developer. You're not going to invest in learning Perl. You're going to invest. You're going to invest in learning Java, uh, Python, or Python, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Python's an old one, actually. It's an oldie but a goodie, right? It came about. But nowadays, it was Rust. Yeah, right. Pascal also. Pascal. Haskell. 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 Uh, Haskell still still has its its place in in enthusiast uh, software development as well. Um, that the, there is a there is a very uh, tight knit community of uh, functional programming enthusiasts. Uh, mm. They they keep Haskell alive. Uh, pretty well. <laughs> I would say the same about Erlang. One one of the ones I I like. Yeah. yeah. Well, even. The, even C and C++, uh, both of those are still extremely necessary, but there are very few practitioners in the younger groups. Yeah, but there's still plenty of practitioners of C and C++, because that's not something yeah. that the boomers oh, it were exclusively about. I mean, yeah. Fortran and COBOL are, are really boomer and older. Yeah, C and C plus plus. You see, though, you see it still being used a lot in in embedded systems mm -hmm. yeah. and drivers, um, and yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Very reasonable. Um, and Fortran uh, is still big in in uh, certain science areas, especially space. 
physics. Yeah, yeah. although SAS has become more popular in that area. Um, yeah, I, I, to an extent, I think you could support a language or maintain it without, you know, with less expertise than building fresh applications or, or it depends on the complexity. Of it. Right. But. Well, that's a good question because my husband, um, you know, he's retired now, but he, he built languages. He was responsible for several languages, um, none of which are still being used anymore, but <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> different question. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was seen at some point as a valuable skill that you could write languages from scratch. Um, nobody seems to be doing that anymore. I, I don't know. It, I, it seems like we're still popping up new languages all the time. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure you'll find five or six of them in Google that will, <laughs> some of which will never see the light of day and one of which will pop out at some point. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it definitely still happens. Um, but some of them even take off sometimes. I, I mean, rust. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, rust. That's true. Yeah. They all seem to be variations on Java in some way. <laughs> I, it's definitely if if you're looking if if your goal is to have something that can be used widely, then Java, you know, picking picking yeah. Java or variants a good a good plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't call it a a variation of Java. I I, I can see some syntactic similarities, but that's about it. Uh, similarly, Golang, like they, they, they are syntactically much more dif different as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, since it, since Erlang was, was mentioned, like it, it, Erlang actually has seen a little bit of a renaissance for uh, uh, as a as a language for for driving uh, web services. <laughs> I, well, it'd be Lispy, right? And I know Lisp, Lisp was having some interest back back in the day. I remember Lisp. Um, it's so, it's a very good it's a very good web language, right? Because the nesting, yeah, yeah. Uh, HTML nesting, and the functional programming paradigms for those two languages actually fit mm -hmm. really nicely. So Rust is related closer to C plus plus than Java. Yes. Yeah. And I suspect safety. if you take a look at AutoCAD and other, pro, well, especially AutoCAD, you will still find Lisp underlying a large majority <laughs> of that code base. Yes, that is true. Isn't, they Emacs, have isn't Emacs also Lispy? Emacs is, was written in Lisp, but then it had some shortcuts to optimize it that was Lisp to C, C kind of stuff, but yes. Uh, but yeah, you can write you can use Emacs as an IDE for Lisp. Well, that's a scary thought. I used to be an expert at Emacs. Analytics. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, does does modernizing involve like re-platforming this stuff? So, if we're looking at a modern modernization, does that mean saying, ah, we're using, you know, uh, you know? Fortran definitely, maybe, but Java, you could say, hey, Java's not, you know, we're, we're worried about Java, or we're worried about, maybe I could pick a better example. Um, but, I, and we want to, we want to migrate it. Is that part of modernization? Does it, 
in, involve having to rewrite it or can we leave the language as is, assuming there's enough support for it? It I depends. Think, yeah, it depends. Boils down to cost risk. How much does it cost to port it? What's the risk of porting it? <laughs> it, I mean, it strikes me as porting porting an app is usually problematic. Yes. I mean, and just, that's why, in depending upon how legacy the code is, it might be simpler and more direct to simulate the the hardware platform, hardware software platform. It is it's on than to actually rewrite the app in another language because that platform could be more simple than the app itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I've been involved with, with, with several um, rewrite um, attempts, not of financial language, but, but of large platforms. And um, Rewriting is inherently very, very, very difficult, and, and, and that that I wasn't stuttering when when I said that many varies. Yes. It, it it really is that that bad. Like particularly when you're trying to produce a drop in replacement, it, it is extremely difficult. It's a very leaky proposition because it's all those. Uh, edge and remote cases that everyone depends on that they found that were never documented in the original system. Well, that, and, and you may also have a moving target. So, so you, you may be on track for the initial specification, but by the time you finish uh, your, your product to meet those specifications, the current specifications are different. Yeah. Yes. And they don't play well with the original. Yeah. So so it, it is literally a Sisyphean task. Or 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 a Sinus paradox or whatever you want to you want to call it. Like I mean, so so but but can we like I'm I'm walking through the modernization playbook, if you will. I'm air quoting it, you can't see me air quote. Um, and Part of what people would do is they would containerize microservice and containerize from that perspective, right? Can we, you know? E yes. The, the difference with, 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 with that kind of playbook is that you typically don't containerize the whole stack. You, you start by carving out small functions of the stack, containerizing them. And, and, and delegating them. And in the end, uh, once, once you do that enough times, what you're left with is just a skeleton of an application that delegates all its functions to the containerized environment. And that's, that's what you replace in, in the end. Uh, but it's still a very big uh, undertaking and it does not always have a clear path. Particularly, like again, with, with all the systems like this that, that are that are so embedded in the functionality of, of of not just one company, but of sometimes of entire nations, uh, that you you have you have absolutely no room for for errors there. 
Uh, you might take a look at some of the stuff that happened during COVID, like when they changed the unemployment rules and suddenly decided to give everybody extra cash. California's unemployment system just crashed because it was so old and cur- and crufty that nobody could actually make the modifications to just add money to the system. Um, well, so holes were developed elsewhere within the system when it happened. So interesting. Um, so in California's case, that was a side effect. In Florida's case, that was done on purpose. They they purposely starved that system by not giving the IT people for the, of the unemployment system any money uh, with the intended consequence that nobody could apply because the system didn't work. That just so sounds like Florida. Yes, it does. Yeah. Thank you, Ron DeSantis. And, and if, if you want to look at, at a real life example of, of an attempted re-implementation of, of our of like wholesale re-implementation of a system gone wrong, uh, look up the, the, the Phoenix Pay system and, and what happened in Canada with it. It 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 was it, it's it's still like ongoing lawsuits uh, about it. Yeah, and California is is in that state right now too. It was uh, ten years ago or more that California decided to modernize all of its uh, its uh, computer systems, and they had a a target date and a target amount of money. And actually, I think it's fifteen years now, and it was supposed to be done like five years after the fact, and. It's still nowhere near done, and the cost has ballooned uh, like five times to, from the original one. And there's still nothing of it is working so far as we can tell. There's just an article about that recently. <clears throat> so they they couldn't even get one system modernized in the time and scope of what they tried to do the entire state systems for. So, so actually, state systems are a perfect example, or actually, even federal systems are a perfect example of legacy systems that don't get love and attention. Um, the Social Security Administration system, I think, is still running on some bog old 1950s thing. The IRS is still running on antique crap. Um, and again, it's per- in many cases, it's purposely starved. The IRS is definitely purposely starved. Uh, you will find, though, I think in the federal system, they brought in a bunch of folks from from real high tech, uh, including program and project managers and whatnot. And they've created tiger teams or whatnot to go into specific services and fix specific systems. And they're yeah. actually having a lot of success with that. Uh, the U.S. Digital Services uh, Organization. Um, I've got, I'll find a link for it. Um, yeah, they still have a ways to go. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. My daughter works for the Census Bureau. And um, it's totally amazing to me how antique the system she works on are. Mm. <laughs> I mean, is it, again, going back to, it's a giant database, a really giant database. (laughs) Um, 
mm-hmm. that it's like a library. Um, because people want to, you know, and, and it's, you know, you have to be careful about who has access to it and, and all that stuff. But, um, you know, it's primarily used for mining for data. Um, I, I guess. Keep going. We have this idea that that's that the systems are bad. If they if they're available and they're working, what's the what's the downside? They're not bad. It's just I mean, my I watch what my daughter. I mean, I spent a lot of time with her recently because of the COVID, and um, she spends a lot of time knitting because the um, database is so slow. Every time she runs a job, <laughs> okay. it takes like eight hours or two days or you know some god awful amount of time to run this. This stupid thing. And it right. shouldn't. You know, it's mm-hmm. just data and it's just analytics of data. So it's just, it's pretty standard stuff in terms of data analytics. There's nothing, there's no fancy AI here. <laughs> um, you know, she's just combing through the database, looking for specific types of data and pulling it out and doing analytics on it. And it and why should it take two days to run? That, and there's the reason to modernize or just extract. Why not just export the whole database and then create a lake and not yeah. interact mm-hmm. with the database at all? Yeah, yes. I, yeah you, you can still have the, the database as the ultimate source of truth. But yeah, uh, the, I mean, the, I, I was just thinking when, when you were doing, explaining the scenario, like, yeah, that this is a, a a good opportunity for 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 doing ETL like proactively, yeah. like uh, pre- like prepare the data, pre-process it, so and, and put it. Uh, yeah, as you said, uh, Robin, like in a data lake or or an OLAP database or or, or anything else that makes analytics a, a lot easier, and a lot more powerful, and faster. Uh, um, as long as you don't need to do this on a like on a day to day to day basis. Uh, and maybe even if you do need to do this on a day-to-day basis, as long as there's sufficient consumers of the data, it, it does pay off. So some of the issues for just exporting it all to a data lake or some other location could be because of compliance and privacy and security issues where only certain people are allowed to get to do certain types of searches or get to certain types of certain types of fields or whatnot. So that could complicate that. That could be an impediment to get people moving the data to someplace easier to access all these people. And it could be valid or not valid, but they could still use that claim to keep the data from being moved. Maybe. I mean, it depends on what the data is. Um, I mean, it, I, 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 I would agree that there might be some niche data that just cannot be moved to, to other systems unless those are certified. But I would say that more than 90%, like, probably even more than 99% of the data that, that's, that's being kept in these legacy systems uh, could well be run on 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 cloud environments that, that are FedRAMP compliant. 
or, or the equivalent for, for say, like EU or, uh, or any other jurisdiction. Yes, uh, I agree with that. Uh, the interesting thing would be, though, is what some of these older systems might have used for primary index keys. And that could be like major privacy issue if the index key was the thing that nobody should have access to. That is possible. Does does it create a problem also when, if you're pushing data back to these sources? Because the other thing that strikes me as problematic in these legacy systems is if they are a source of truth, you also have to ingest back to them. Which actually strikes me as is more problematic than reading. Like read only reading only out of a system, not a big deal. But if you're still trying to pump data into it, um, and it's you know it's behind a firewall or in a single location or it's not replicated well, that's that strikes me as actually much more problematic than than the idea of the you know the fact that we're we've we're creating a whole bunch of read-only access into a system, which is where we've mostly talked. Well, that's I mean, with that, I'll... yeah. Good, Chris Klaus. No, I wasn't saying anything. Uh, I was, I was, I was going to add. It just, it strikes me as like there's a, you either have a, you know, it's mostly be a performance risk. But obviously, you know, you you might be very limited in how well you can ramp a system if you're if the if you're choking to a legacy through a legacy app or to a legacy database. Well, all these a lot of these legacy apps have have batch jobs that run in the middle of the night to um, to get all the databases up to date or the other whatever systems uh, data storage up to date and whatnot. Uh, this actually reminds me of. The old, I hate to say, it, this reminds me of the old uh, descriptions of the IBM system programmers and operators, where you essentially have a class of priesthood that has the secrets and runs the system, and you have to go to them to get any answers or to provide any input for those answers. <laughs> And yes, batch jobs still run on a lot of financial systems. Yep, they do. And Rob, so yeah, hey everybody, yeah. Corey, I'm new to the group here, but um, that is the complexity of what companies are dealing with as far as being able to transform and, and get off these applications as you have these, these complex web, maybe it's more like spaghetti bowl of... <laughs> Yeah, Integ integrations that ultimately make the end solution work and identifying and getting people on board to slowly make those changes becomes uh, is is fairly difficult. It's not that it's not doable. It's more around, I think, large investments and uh, whatnot to, to be able to do it uh, in a lot of organizations can't justify that level of investment. Yeah, that gets that gets back to our earlier conversation. It's 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 really expensive, particularly with these large databases. Yeah, as an example, I used to work for um, a health provider where uh, the ETL jobs themselves uh, took 
some of them took eight hours, some of them took 24 hours. And it was started to become problematic because, well, the time just kept incrementing a, a little bit, you know, each week, each month, you know, and so they, they had to address it. Uh, and being an infrastructure guy, I was part of the side of the team to go, quote, what would it look like to just buy, uh, uh, for me, it was new, new all flash storage, right? Uh, back then it was, flash was still really relatively expensive. Oh, flash was, yeah, it was probably expensive. And then the, uh, on the application side, they went and quoted how, how much effort it would re- require um, to refactor the queries. Because uh, they had already done analysis saying, really, the problem is the fact that we have a lot of inefficient queries doing this processing. Uh, and they came back with millions and ours came back, our quote came back with a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so um, they said, well, I know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And so we solved a software problem with hardware just to, uh, because it was cheaper. Right. Yes. The, it's fascinating that you wait long enough and hardware actually has a better return on investment if you wait long enough. I think the other challenge in all of this becomes the the political aspect or the the human aspect, so to speak. When you look at whether it's software vendors or technologists themselves or companies trying to figure out, especially from when we start painting everything as legacy uh, that is apparently older than like five years. Uh, and, and so you become a problem like even now where everybody's jumping to, to Kubernetes, the mm. practitioners are going to Kubernetes because that's where the money's at. The companies are looking to go to, to Kubernetes right, wrong, or indifferent because CTOs, CIOs are pushing that as an opportunity for them to foster digital transformation, plus also have attracting the, the best and brightest talent. Software vendors are jumping into the space uh, with both feet and both arms as fast as they can to try and get that, that cash as part of the process. So in a lot of ways, everyone's incentivized to keep moving forward and just essentially just leave the, the past as the past, so to speak. You know, you bring up another point, which is that uh, vendors don't want to maintain. Old, I mean, I think we talked about this earlier uh, in previous discussions, but vendors don't want to maintain legacy equipment. And, and that applies to hardware and software. Uh, you know, try, try you know, Dell, Dell equipment, five-year-old Dell equipment. Um, you get it on the aftermarket because you ain't going to get it from Dell. Um, and, and that that's, so if you're relying on a hardware fix, um, you, you can be very vulnerable. You might not even be, 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 be aware that you're relying on a hardware fix until you're deep into it. Right. (laughs) So then that actually in some ways comes back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier with SUSE and uh, enterprises and whatnot and going with the more stable operating systems. It's, you've got these operating systems that don't change, but you still have hardware where the vendors stop supporting them after five years, even if SUSE is supporting the software for more than five years. So there's lots and lots of gotchas in this entire process, especially these days when nobody seems to think either hardware or software should be maintained beyond about the two-year point. 
Mm-hmm. But it's the compounding yeah. factor when you, as a software company, have to deal with additional versions as it continues to progress forward. Right. So, you know, in some, I can tell you from experience, there are, there are times that it is actually cheaper for the company to just buy out the legacy customers. Um, we, we had a, we had about 200 customers that run, we had bought another company and it came with this cockamamie um, managed firewall thing. <laughs> um, and it was actually cheaper for us to just, uh, we, we actually, um, they came to me and we gave them an alternative, but I think about 50 of those 200 converted and the rest of them just kind of disappeared. And you know what? We didn't care because <laughs> we could not support that system. It was put together with smoke and mirrors and strings and glue. Um, so we walked away from these customers and it represented, you know, about, I think it was about a little under $2 million worth of revenue a year, which for Verizon is sort of a spit in the bucket, <laughs> um, but it probably cost us more than the, than the 2 million just to maintain those stupid things. So sometimes you have to cut your, cut your losses and walk away. But so let me, I want to put the shoe on the other foot in a sense of, future future databases because what we're is is what we're talking about like from an era or are we literally because we started the started the whole discussion talking about complexity and it feels like we're things are much more complex and the connections between the systems is even there are more of them and they're they're less well understood or less well mapped than they were but you had a database you could just like know who's given access are we making a new generation of holy cow horrible legacy what are we learning that that should be applied uh we probably are and we don't know it yet yeah Yeah. i I think we are also looking at the data differently now Uh, like as opposed to starting out with with a database that keeps the data forever um, and blockchain being the exception, I guess. Uh, we, we're now also looking at uh, hot, warm, and cold data. And we, we are setting up our systems so that the cold data does not need to be on the same database system as the, as the hot and warm data. You, you, you just extract it and, and archive it, and then it, it's just a file format. Uh, and then once you load it, you load it into whatever database format you are using at the time if you load it at all. Um, so I think we, we're we're moving towards more of a, a strategy of saying we need to be dynamic with our warm, uh, hot and warm data. Uh, we need to be able to uh, to be portable with it, and on our cold data, we we just need to eventually have access to it. Yeah, well, you bring up a good point because um, what you're wandering into is data data retention policies and what the data is used for over time. Um, and, and you know, the reality is, I, I, and I've seen the numbers because uh, I I did a whole bunch of stuff with data retention, of, you know, uh, a few years ago. Um, 
something like 90% of all data never gets looked at again after three months. <laughs> it's like completely worthless. <laughs> um, and it's just used for archive purposes. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of data retention policies too that say after X amount of time, it's perfectly okay to delete the data. And if you don't delete it, and there's some legal action against you, it's, you know, it can work against you. So a lot of companies are become in the last 10 years or so gotten pretty aware of that. They have to police their data retention. Um, yeah. they, can't, they can't just keep it forever. Um, yeah, particularly with GDPR, where, where you may be mandated to actually not keep your data after a certain time. Right. Right. If, if a customer leaves, the company, for example. Um, uh, although, to be fair, uh, you, you can still re retain the data as long as you lose the ability to associate it back to the customer. Right. So, GDPR does have an exception for that. Yes. But, but that you still need to be able to completely disassociate, disassociate the data. Uh, and you need to be able to prove that there's no way uh, to link that data back to, to a customer afterwards. Right. Well, data reten there's, there are certain pieces of data that you need for longitudinal studies that, that are quite valuable, um, you know, medical record data, for example. But again, you have to anonymize them, right? If you Which is very difficult. It is very difficult. I know. I was involved in that years ago. Um, <laughs> apparently, um, I was uh, the company I was working for, was we were using it to create... Um, a speech recognition system for medical records. And um, we got access to a bunch of data from uh, MGH, Mass General Hospital, uh, of um, lung cancer. It was not lung cancer, it was um, lung exams or something, medical records. And, uh, you know, I loaded the system up and I looked in there and it was really obvious that if I didn't know who these people were, you know, the names had been removed, but if I'd been a doctor I, at, at Mass General, I would have been able to recognize at least some of these patients because, you know, there was some specific information about, you know, their diagnosis that would be, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. Yeah, well, uh, PII is, is a very touchy subject. Yeah, like to it, that it, point, yeah, my husband has a heart monitor that just, is like a little EKG in his chest that broadcasts to the doctor. And the cardiologist pretty much says, yep, I, I can recognize you because you have this weird little wave. So all I need to see is this wave and I can put a name to that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it, 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 it can be even something simpler. Like for example, person is blonde with blue eyes. And in North America, that, that might not be sufficient to identify the person. But if you look at, let's say, Southeast, Southeast Asia. Oh, man, they would stand out like a red light. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so something that might seem innocuous now might, might end up being PII uh, at, at a later time. So it, it's, it's very difficult. And, and there's, there's entire businesses around uh, helping anonymize data. Yes, yes. And, 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 and doing it provably. And, and it's important, particularly like with medical data, you know, medical, old medical records going back 50, 60 years are actually incredible sources of information, not just for 
packing, which they are used for, but but more importantly for medical research, right? You, you know, you can you need that information, and it can be anonymized for that for those purposes, if it can be, which is as you pointed out, very difficult. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know that OSHA um, requires that you hold on to the data about any um, industrial accidents for a minimum of thirty years. Mm-hmm. They have the longest record requirement. 30, 30 years? I 30 guess, years. Okay, considering the impact of some of those accidents. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's exactly why. Yeah, like a, a, a spell 30 years ago could could uh, could lead to uh, a rise in cancer cases now. Exactly right. That's exactly yeah. why they need that requirement. But they, they have the longest record re, uh, record retention requirement of any of the government agencies. Getting back to like the, I know we're at the top of the hour um, yeah. or bot, whatever it is. Uh, I think <laughs> complexity at the macro level, um, it, it, as we kind of are sitting here at a, like a systems level, holistic systems level is going to get more complex. I don't think that's going away. I think what's happening is we're, tr- we're making it more simple at the micro level around how to, uh, manage and deploy your application potentially, or at least your microservice. So you as a developer, if you're working on a, a specific feature of a microservice, um, you're less worried about how your code is going to compile at, with the monolithic application and maybe some issues with uh, crawl or with a database that may have a bunch of views built into it. How is your schema change going to affect everybody else? Um, you're, it's going to be more reliant on what what your microservice is doing, but then at a macro level, it gets more complex. And I think that's where observability is important. I think that's where, you know, uh, AI ops is really important around kind of looking at the holistic picture as incidents occur uh, to help uh, point operators in the right direction on, on where to, where to focus efforts. Right. Um, that's, that's my, my, my view on it. I think at a macro level, more complex, but at a micro level, um, we're getting a little bit more simple as long as you're doing it right um, around how to build your microservice. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and also uh, another example, uh, like comparing co- complexity of, of usually when 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 complexity of say Kubernetes is is, is examined, uh, they they look at the entire orchestration platform versus a single application running on a VM, but they they're ignoring the, the complexity of the VM itself of the, the monitoring stack on, on, on the VM, of all the tools and, and, and that need to be installed and, and agents uh, on, on said VM uh, and the, the other ancillary systems that, that, are, that are still needed to be present, but that are not, are not directly coupled to it. Uh, and in the end, the complexity is the same. It's, it's just that in Kubernetes, it's more obvious. I 100% agree with you. Yep. So well, this think, is. Go ahead, Beth. I was just going to say this has been a fascinating conversation, as always. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that I think Rob might disagree with a micro level complexity going down because the the operator complexity is continuing to increase dramatically. And so at the application level, you can't ignore stuff. You can ignore stuff, but you 
don't necessarily want to. The operators can't ignore stuff at some the lower lower levels and the mid levels that developers and application writers do ignore. So it's I'm not convinced that complexity is going down at the micro level. I agree with you on that. I don't see that happening either. Yeah, and I, I there there's an interesting um, discussion on frameworks versus other stuff that one of our participants from Thursday's uh, guy from VMware and I can't remember his name talked about where frameworks don't work uh, because you keep having to modify them, but they do work in that they reduce complexity for the people who can use them out of the box. And so it's, and especially with the security aspects, if we can't provide tools, systems, containers, virtual machines that are secure, then complexity for everybody for security purposes is just going to go up yeah. off the scale. I, I would say that, that perhaps saying that complex, whether complexity is higher, lower, or the same, it, it's not what, what we should be saying. Uh, but instead, we, we should be saying coupling is going down. Yeah, that might uh, be a better way to classify yeah. it. Yeah, uh, and and co and at the same time, cohesion is go is going up. The you your your microservices are internally coherent. They are more decoupled uh, from each other, uh, but. Um, or at least that they're more loosely coupled with each other. Uh, and, and that is where the big gain is. It, not not in, 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 in that there is less complexity, because if you need to perform the same operation, you kind of have the same complexity at, at the minimum. Uh, but but the, the, because your coupling is looser, um, you you can make some assumptions in a microservice oriented architecture that you cannot uh, otherwise, such as like eventual availability of a certain service. True, and that that's actually, uh, like you said, one of the major benefits of microservices and other things. The decoupling it does provide for some. Uh, some uh, easing of, of concerns in a very complex system. I think part of the issue is that everything we, the more stuff we do, uh, a lot of our stuff is getting a lot more complex. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the stuff is doing more. Exactly. Exactly. So well, and, and in some ways, it's doing less too. We're we're smaller services, all connected together. But those small services were huge, full mainframe. Everything works towards yeah, back this in the kind day. of thing at one point. So fair enough. Each mm -hmm. of those services, which are small now, used to be huge. So, but I think we've hit the time. 
I hope your cards are definitely safe at the up. time. So <laughs> thanks all. Thank you all. Great conversation. Yep. All right. Talk to you next time. What a thoughtful conversation uh, where we really think about how it, how we migrate systems and, and what it takes to put put infrastructure together um, in ways that we can now maintain and sustain. I, I hope you got a lot out of it. I think we're going to keep coming back to this type of topic. Uh, it is a big one for us. And how to manage complexity is a major theme for these discussions. I'd love to hear your input on it. Please join us at the2030.cloud and be part of the discussion. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.